Hey, welcome to the Mostly Skateboarding Podcast. I'm your host, Templeton Elliott, and I'm joined this week by Mike Munzenreiter and Patrick Kagongo to celebrate the 25th anniversary of some iconic skate videos. But first, we're talking Palace. GQ just published a profile of Palace and went deep with the people behind the brand. So it makes sense for us to go deep with the person behind the profile, Noah Johnson. So Noah, what made you want to profile Palace for GQ? Well, I thought it was just sort of relevant to our audience, I suppose, being that Palace is a pretty massive, globally known and successful fashion brand, ultimately. And and what I do at GQ is mostly cover fashion. So it was sort of right up my alley. And having like just a personal history as a skateboarder, just I'm always looking out for like, what's the skate story that's going to be cool for GQ. I think I think it's fair game for GQ to cover skateboarding. And um, those stories are always well-read and well-received. And you know, like any good magazine is a reflection of the interests of the people who make it, you know, as, as nuanced and specific as those things can be. And I'm a skater. I work at GQ. So I'm always looking for cool skate stories to do. Palace in particular, obviously has just been one of the sort of hottest skate brands of the last several years. And the most interesting thing to me was that they're pretty press shy. So there wasn't a very, there's not a large amount of stories about Palace out there. Lev and some of the skaters have done a handful of interviews, but Lev rarely does interviews and they had never done a story like this before. So that was kind of the big thing. It was like the chance to, I don't know if I'm really going to be generous to myself here, the chance to do like the definitive palace story. Well, we'll be generous. I think you did the, the definitive palace story for sure. Thank you. <laughs> Since you're a skater, like, did you see palace coming before everybody else? Like as far as coming into fashion i don't know um yeah surely i did i mean i remember when i think the trey trill video was the first time i really got psyched on palace and i think that was kind of the year palace came out and you just saw that video i i i could be wrong my timeline could be off as it will be throughout the course of this episode so just give me a little wiggle room here but i when i when i saw like the first palace video i was like this is definitely special and cooler than a lot of what's happening in skating right now like i just noticed it i just thought hmm this is definitely a thing and then it was pretty soon that they had like rihanna wearing a palace t-shirt like within their first year out maybe she was wearing she either wore the versace shirt or the chanel shirt it was the versace shirt i think and i was working at complex at the time i was the style editor there for a while and immediately Palace was like something we had to be covering. So probably pretty early on it. And then, you know, some years later it was being sold at Dover Street Market, which is sort of the, like the, they're like the gatekeepers of like the skate brands that get accepted into the fashion world. So a uh, couple of follow-up questions for you, Noah. First of all, this profile was absolutely amazing. It's actually very rare that you get this type of depth and insight into the inner workings and the philosophies of a skate brand even from mainstream skate media. I don't think it's just Lev who's media shy. I mean, goodness, there are companies that we grew up with and absolutely worship and we, who knows anything about 101, for example, still revered and yet, you know, Nanas doesn't do much in terms of interviews or um, retrospectives. There's been some re-releases, but whatever. But I'm looking backwards to ask this first question. Can you kind of remind us and the listeners where skateboarding was in 2009 when Palace first arrived and when they really kind of started to blow up around 2011, 2012 and really start to get on a lot of people's radars. Yeah, you guys are probably as good as I am at filling in those blanks. But my sense is that up until that point, this 
gate scene sort of globally was really dominated by American brands, particularly brands from California and particularly brands from California that didn't offer much by way of like a culture. This is, <laughs> this is a stretch, but I, I think that's what Lev and his crew sort of picked up on. Palace was sort of formed. I didn't get into this too deeply and I don't know a lot about it, but from the sort of ashes of blueprint. And so London did have and ha has had a history of very good independent, you know, skate brands and, and skaters and skate videos being made. But for whatever reason, Blueprint fell apart. And I think for Lev and his friends the, and the sort of Slam City extended crew and, and everything, it was like, what brands out there are really for us? And I, I don't really know. I couldn't tell you what it was that they were seeing. I mean, at the time I was skating, I was into Girl and Chocolate as I had been for fucking 20 years <laughs> or whatever, they were 15 years. And or Alien Workshop, you know, the, the handful of brands that we all like that had been around a long time. They were like institutions. They didn't feel like, um, they were weirdly like not engaging. They were like, they were just these familiar and kind of larger than life brands. And um, I don't know, that's my sense of it. I mean, what do you guys think? I, 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 when Palace came out and it was followed or came out around the time of a handful of other brands like Bronze or Magenta and Polar or, you know, brands from other parts of the world and from other regions that really represented what they do and, and did it their own way and were built out of like a crew and a vibe first and then sort of like a product offering second. Like that felt so new and cool. And I felt like Palace was, was like a very early example of that. That was frankly, like I thought pretty thrilling to see. I think, I think you're being a very, very diplomatic because what you're saying without saying is that skateboarding, um, mainstream skateboarding had gotten very boring. Yeah, around sure. 2009, 2010, uh, those companies which had survived the recession, and at that time it was, you know, nine and 10, it was still a pretty severe economic downturn. There was a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of change happening. I think Blueprint really suffered from the, re the recession and a lot of folks ended up either being let go and eventually the company went under. But I think the other thing too is that, especially having um, a lot of friends and relatives in the UK, that Palace were picking up on something that existed in lots of other skate scenes. You know, skaters who had other interests, who were into fashion over there, you know, being into football or soccer, you know, playing pool, hanging out, you know, vibing out with the mandem. And it was exotic. It was exotic to New York and California and Texas and Portland and the whole, you know, all of America looking just like, this is dope. I mean, up until that point, yeah, you had folks going to Barcelona, but you weren't seeing, for example, American skaters going to Barcelona and really engaging with the culture outside a party. With Palace, you kind of got the whole picture. And also, I think it keyed into something really interesting too. Um, this weird kind of, and Bronze was doing this in New York shortly after, like they're, they're, I like to think that their stories are intertwined. This sort of like stoned at your parents' house watching Cablevision or Spectrum or whatever and just picking up random stuff from television and just kind of feeling like, very very fuzzed out and it was a shock and it was beautiful and i don't know like it was a real it was a real earthquake now that we have some we have some perspective on it like palace and bronze and the revitalization of small board brands was a huge thing because there had been a, like a small board you know small brand revolution in the early 1990s but like you had said by 2009 2010 girl chocolate <laughs> they were no longer the underdogs they were the mainstream like i'll jump in real quick I know, no, you, you check it in the, in the piece, 
the PWC uh, weekly news, like when yeah. you first watched that, when I first watched that, that shit was like a frying pan over the head. Like it was crazy in terms of everything that was coming out. You know, I love an Aaron Mesa girl Australia tour edit, but <laughs> WBC was like nothing else. It, 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 is that shock factor something, I guess, from your reporting? And you're right. Was that shock factor? How much of the, that shock factor was built into the brand success? I mean, I think it was written all over it from the beginning. My sense is, in, in, you know, for Lev and for Palace, it's just fucking fireworks every day. The, those early PWBC, like those edits, I wish I could remember like seeing them as they were coming out. But this was like pre-Instagram, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... I have like some vague recollections of seeing that stuff. I think I must have seen Trey Trill, which is the first Palace video that like I really saw. And there was some promo stuff before that, but that's the one I noticed. I must have gone back and watched the other stuff and just been like, this is just a whole, this is like a fully realized vision, like a fully realized aesthetic vision that is completely new. I think it was just apparent. And I think Lev is like a creative genius, frankly. (laughs) I mean, like, and he had a lot of really good, smart ideas and amazing intuition. And he is a masterful marketer. And that's that's where that that shock value you talk about is. I mean, like the lame, ver- the the stupid thing to call that is marketing. And that's what he's the absolute best at. I've never encountered anyone in fashion or skateboarding better. There was also a cultural moment at the time too, where thanks to broadband internet and also the presence of communities in uh new york and london that kind of go back and forth especially um especially west indians and africans that was kind of crossing over into hip-hop you had you know you had artists who were kind of starting to drill into drill music grime obviously a lot of uh uk dance music and that was kind of starting to flow into underground culture in the us in a very very big way much bigger than it had in the 1990s and I think another thing that was happening around that time was that there were a lot of folks in skateboarding who were kind of starting to feel like it was becoming a job if you wanted to be mainstream in skateboarding, that they wanted to go back to doing zines, doing their own videos, doing a crew edit and, you know, platforms like YouTube and Vimeo and being able to just do like a short run printing of your own thing. Ended up to, it ended up being very, very liberating. And it was kind of like a, it was a renaissance for people doing things independently. And I think um, people are starting to get hyped on local vids from wherever. And we've talked to a couple of people who've done some of those videos on this podcast. And I guess it just felt like it was time for something new and Par- Palace like was riding a, a very serious wave. Yeah, I think it's probably also worth just taking into account the, the proliferation of new technology at that time. Like, this is right when everyone was starting to have a, a camera in their pocket at all times. Like this was the beginning of, and Lev filmed a lot of that stuff on mobile phone cameras and stuff. And, but like, to me, this was around the time when me and my friends started making like tons of skate video edits and like fucking around with them. So I think it was just, it just was very relatable in that way. So I just think that that's a big, interesting piece of it. The, just the, the technology part of the story and part of Palace's success, I think is pretty interesting in terms of the timing of the brand. Yeah, I don't think it would have been possible in like a pre-internet age when you had to like buy ads in the three major magazines and stuff like that. But it was just like, you could just put some random shit on the internet and, you know, it could take off. I think I probably came across a 
like on a blueprint blog or like maybe from slap and i remember one of those early news shows or whatever like they were talking shit about somebody using the bungee cord to like do some trick like some california skater yeah. uh, and I, I feel like that shit talk probably got them a lot of attention mm-hmm. yeah. oh yeah the the industry had chilled out a lot people were nowhere nearly as controversial as they were in say the mid-1990s mike and templeton you both were in mainstream skateboard journalism but all both also did blogs what would what did it feel like to be self-publishing and doing stuff on your own at that time did it feel as exciting as I thought it is. I was doing music blogs at the time, and that definitely felt like a lot of fun. I mean, for me, like I had a series of extremely boring, terrible office jobs, and <laughs> doing a skate blog was the only thing that kept me from like jumping out of a window. So that was exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the most interesting stuff, aside from like straight blogging that I was doing, was earlier than that, even like. 04, 05, 06, and we just make weird edits and they were quick time videos and it was like updating HTML. And yeah, it was a lot of fun because it was, I, I, I feel like there could be a little bit of a reflection of what Palace was doing and that like throw everything at the, at the wall and see what sticks and just get weird as you want. It was good. No, one thing you touched on, and I think it's, it's relevant here is that like Leb's filming on his phone. And I thought it was really interesting in the piece where I forget the designer's name. He made the ah, Triferg. Yeah, Fergus Purcell. Yeah. God, they all had such fantastic names. I know. Um, Gabriel Pluckrose. The Triferg, I, I, I love that bit where they were talking about, we have these grimy videos. They're low quality. They're on YouTube. You can't see shit, but we got to make sure that this logo is fucking is huge. Huge and just distinct. Like, how much chaos do you think it was versus like those dudes being really smart about what they're doing in that medium? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, it's such a simple idea, right? Make the graphics big. They'll be easier to see. But also <laughs> Fergus is a g- fucking genius. Like that yeah. guy is a wizard. He is not really a skater. He's a design master and he is really smart and a really interesting guy. I think he was fully tapped into Lev's very specific sort of lo-fi style of filming, which at the time was mobile phones and then later became VHS sort of like camcorders. And I think Ferg understood like sort of intuitively like what this thing had to be graphically to work. And yeah, these guys were, these guys were tapped into branding. You know, they were all like, from football culture and from rave culture and from, of course, the history of skate culture. Like they were, I don't know, like they understood how exciting it could be to have a brand that everyone knew. And I don't think other skate brands thought that way. I don't know. Like I think other skate brands had all kinds of other aspirations if we're going to like assign some sort of like human like qualities to them. But in terms of like having the sickest team and like having a certain kind of aesthetic or board graphic or, or general sort of artistic direction. But I think with Palace, there was this other type of opportunity, which was being like a globally known <laughs> in your face, undeniable, can't escape it brand. And that was like from day one and they fucking did it. Like in 10 years, they're like the woman who wins Wimbledon is wearing Palace. It's just this crazy. Oh yeah. There was, there was a quote about Lev and I wish I'd have, written down who who to attribute it to he didn't have any barriers on what he was or what skate culture was was that purcell no i think uh gareth said that lev's partner but like 
that stands out because I think you touched on it where like a lot of skate companies, let's have the sick team. Let's put, you know, dope. I, I hate to flog girl, but you know, I, I was the same way as you like 15 years with girl and chocolate, like big girl logo, do the, do the good shit that we know that works. But like thinking outside of the box, I think it's a little bit more standard now, but like coming on a decade ago, that was, that was revolutionary. And yeah, it's what you're oh, speaking no. to. No Skate- question there. Skateboarding was still dominated by skate rat culture, which was all skateboarding all the time, 24-7-365. For Palace and now for a whole other bunch of brands that have come in their wake, you know, you've got, honestly, you got people who got a lot of other creative and even non-creative or athletic interests. And so it makes for a much, much more interesting skate brand experience as opposed to skate rat because there's always going to be that lane there's always going to be the shoe company and the board company that is for the diehard skate rats but you know we're all grown folks here uh we have a lot more interests as proper adults and it's cool to watch palace continue to grow and change you know especially as we grow and change and 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 our interests grow and change and like the mind-blowing thing for me was you know very early on they had a jersey uh, with Umbro that was a direct reference, direct pull from the England jersey from the 1990 World Cup in Italy. Fast forward however many years, and they did the collab with Juventus in Italy, which is absolutely wild if you think about it. That's a massive leap, you know? That Jeep, uh, that Jeep logo uh, jersey of theirs is one of the best selling in the world, and Ronaldo had just joined the team, so my God, like, that's pretty incredible. But Here's the thing, like, do y'all remember, like, how did the rest of the, how was the, how did the rest of skateboarding react to this? Because I know I was hyped and my friends were hyped, uh, but I imagine that there must, you know, because skateboarding has a strong, lowercase c, conservative slash reactionary bent to it. And I'm sure there was definitely people who were like, what the hell is this shit? I mean, when did everyone start quitting girl? Mm. 2012, 13, 14? Does that sound about right? Somewhere in there. I mean... I think that there was a massive fallout. It didn't happen right away, but I think you could probably look at how once Palace, it was clear what Palace was up to and a few other independent European and, and, and non-European brands kind of emerged. A lot of skaters, I think, started looking at their board company sideways. But I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting to look at like that timeline of like, when did the big names start leaving to start their own board companies and it's still happening obviously it's always in flux i don't know i'm generalizing in like a crazy way and i don't follow the skate industry enough to like really know what i'm talking about but i would i would it would be interesting to look at the what was going on at at workshop and and girl and chocolate and the big brands at the time and then compare it to like the emergence and growth of of palace and then see what skaters start doing yeah i do think it was that pretty sweet video came out in 2012 and then, you know, there was, there was waves of dudes dropping girl and chocolate after that. I think that cinematographer alien workshop section was 2011 and that fell apart shortly thereafter. And I mean, that really is like a couple of years after palace really hit, like when a lot of those legacy brands started splintering. So I, I, I'd never thought of how those timelines line up. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I don't know. I should have this dialed. I think Trail came out in like 2011, maybe it was 2010. If Palace started in 2009. Anyway. I don't even know if I saw that one. That, that, that was it's one of the... such a fucking good video. It's a video where Chewy like sells a bag of weed and then does a trick on this like stoop. <laughs> Amazing. 
Everyone's asking why Chewie's on crutches in the shoot. And I, I had that written down. Please do that. I'm so fucking sorry to report that I had no idea. I do not know. It didn't, like, you know, the shoot was done, and I see the photos after the story's filed, basically, is how it went down. And I didn't get around to it. And I meant to text a friend. God, I'll have to follow up. I meant to just text a friend who works over there to just see what's up. I assume mm-hmm. it's, like, nothing cool. Like, maybe he had a knee surgery because he's hurt. I don't know. I haven't seen any him skate in a long time. Mm-hmm. He's a yeah, the world one. needs more Chewy. Like, oh, yeah. my God. Well, I think Chewy Can is one of my favorite skaters ever. He's about our he's he's closer to 40 than he is to 20. I yeah. think I've figured out that much. Yeah. There was also like another thing that Palace did was um uh there's a dude Kareem who's uh in their whole clique and he's been in quite a few of their videos. He's much more focused on on making jewelry. I love their emphasis on accessories, especially the chains, the rings that they came out with here and there. Um and then also the fact that every now and again they'll remind you that they are pretty serious folks. I'm thinking about last summer 2020 when they decided to do a special run of t-shirts to honor the national health service in the uk like that was amazing and you know i know like there's definitely folks who feel kind of some type of way about skateboarding and fashion and this weird kind of relationship i feel like it's here to stay and i think that there's something really awesome about skating and fashion being together i i thought it was dope with all the models rocking Thrasher shirts. I think it's awesome seeing Rihanna or back then seeing Rihanna wearing a palace joint. I mean, like on the fashion side of it, on the designer side of it, what what do they all see when they see a bunch of skate rats? You know, we see, obviously we see glamour, we see some style, you know, we see like a good time. I mean, especially skating in New York, like you might end up at a fashion party, uh, especially if it's fashion week, but like, what do they see in us? I mean, to me, there is no doubt that skaters are the coolest people on the planet. Like why wouldn't, why wouldn't other people see that? Like, I think there's this sense among skaters that only skaters understand could possibly understand skating and what's great about it. And it's just not true. And why would you want that to be true? I mean, yeah, there's a certain, there's a certain amount of like, you don't get this unless you can fucking do it even a little bit. You don't have to be good, but unless you've like put some time in on a skateboard, like you don't really get it. And I'm totally with that. But I also think, to not just like appreciate it, but to see it and recognize this, how special it is. And to see like a really brilliant skater and to recognize that that person has something special. I don't see why you'd have to be a skater to to pick up on that. Fashion is the industry, the business of image making. They're looking everywhere to create an image and why skateboarding is one of the most magnetic things there is. I mean, why wouldn't this be a, a draw for them? And then, and then, Skateboarding is hugely popular around the world. It sells people, you know, Bart Simpson was a skateboarder. Justin Bieber is a skateboarder. Lil Wayne is a skateboarder. Skateboarding is fucking like, is the thing that everyone wants to align themselves with to represent an entire universe of style and attitude. That's undeniably cool. That's what it represents, period. So you can't just close the gate. You can't just keep it to yourself. I mean, and why would you want to? So that means we've graduated. We're no longer just like uh, the disgusting, uh, disgusting boys club that used to come through, steal beer from parties, get into fights, and eventually, I don't know, maybe somebody would do something bad, like break something or steal something. It's um, much more diverse and way more interesting. So yeah, but think about like what are fucking <laughs> like what are lacrosse players doing? They're way worse. I mean, like <laughs> true. Like 
you know, groups of young people, uh, you know, whatever. I don't know. They get up to shit. But being grimy is cool, you know? You said it so well. Bart Simpson's a skateboarder. With all that said, like, you brought it up earlier. What makes that good GQ skate story then? Like, what do you have to tap into? What boxes to check? It's a good question. I mean, you definitely want to find, like, the little moments where it crosses over into, like, God, I don't know. I mean, I get a lot of leeway, but I try to identify the people or brands that, um, that I think just have a unique appeal that, mm-hmm. that anyone might be interested in. So I've done stories with Gons or with Alex Olsen or with Alexis Sablon. I've done stories with GX 1000 with fucking awesome with Supreme with palace. So there's definitely like leaning towards the like style and sort of crossover appeal, I guess I would like generalize that as being, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty tough thing to like put my finger on. You know, the first contact process with these sources, these people are, how much are you leaning on like your skate back, skateboard background? Do you, do you yeah. like save it? How does that work? Yeah. I hit them up GQ. and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> no, they don't, they don't really care about being in GQ. I, um, I don't, in my experience, I haven't had many like, tricky negotiations trying to convince a skater to like do something they don't want to do for an outlet that they don't want to be in. You know, I think, um, Mm -hmm. I guess I can't underestimate that. Like they can look at my Instagram fucking account and see some like pretty weak, but, um, but heartfully attempted tricks and maybe, (laughs) maybe, maybe respected. And, and that I know some people who have been around skating a long time that have my back that put in good words for me when, when needed, the palace negotiation was very difficult for various reasons. So I haven't encountered too much like resistance, you know, and I haven't too much had to like say, no, look, I'm a skater. I get it. I won't, I won't screw you over here. Cause that's just as dangerous and, and also weirdly misleading or manipulative and yeah. not something I, I feel the need to do. I often wonder if they just know at the first call, if it's like, can you just, do you know, can you talk to me? Can two people talk to each other without ever saying it and know that they've both been around skating for the better part of three decades? And is that, can that be communicated without saying it? Sometimes I think the answer is yes. Seems likely. Who do you pitch first? Do you pitch your editors or do you pitch Palace on the story? I'll, I'll always pitch it internally first. So I pitch to my edit to the editor in chief of GQ, um, who, if I go to him and I say, hey, I think we should do this story about something skate related, he's just going to say, all right, let's do it. <laughs> nice. That trusted uh, judgment at this point. Yeah. Yeah. But he brings ideas. I mean, it was his idea to do a GX story. He was friends with an artist, San Francisco artist that worked with those guys and kind of caught wind of them. And uh, it, it didn't occur to me to pitch that, to be honest. So he knows he knows what's up. Nice. I'm impressed because I, I feel like the GX thing is probably your your like deepest deepest cut of all your skate writing yeah that was my furthest foray into like what i would you know call core skateboarding i mean that was a fucking wild experience they were so kind and so generous and so cool and um down for what we did and happy with how it all came out and i'm still in touch with ryan and i wish i could remember how how i sort of got them on board i probably did a little bit of the like you know, I skate and like, we're going to do this in a cool way. And then like, of course we had them like dressed up in ridiculous fashion bombing Hills, but they were having so much fucking fun. Like I just think about Pablo and this like red 
Prada tracksuit, just like bugging out. Just, I don't know. I mean, it was a very cool project in my opinion. And, and I think that they, those guys would agree. And um, yeah, they, they, it was that artist Ellis, what's his name? He, LSD world peace. Um, damn it. I can't think, believe I can't think of the name of the artist, but he's, he's tight with my editor. So it all came together. Not to fan out, but I always enjoy seeing skateboarding covered in like an intelligent way in mainstream publications, which means usually it means there's a skater behind it because like we're not getting fucking grind puns in the head or anything like that. You know, it's just skateboarding exists as part of the world and here it is. So um, thank you for all that. And they're all widely shared on the skateboard Twitters and all that. Preamble said of the things that you've been able to do, uh, what's your favorite skate related piece that you've done? The GX story is up there. You know, it comes with a lot of, it's a tricky one because, you know, Pablo died and like sort of not too long after that in a sense. And I don't know, I just, I, I didn't spend a ton of time with those guys. I didn't get to know those guys super well, but it was like a special couple of days hanging out in San Francisco with them, a city where I'd never been until that trip. And just like how cool and welcoming they were. And Pablo Ramirez was like a really special person, a very compelling individual, like just I don't know. He just had some kind of magic. So I was like, really that experience was, you know, sort of moved me. So that was always an important one. I don't even know if that's a great story. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a feature. It was just kind of like a little snapshot. And then another one is just the little piece I did with Alexis Sablon last year when she might've been on her way to Tokyo, but of course it was delayed. Um, she's to me, just one of the coolest people on the planet. And um, I hadn't, I had hung out with her a little bit separately previous to that, but I never, I didn't really know her very well. So I was just psyched to get some time to chill with her. And this was last year. She was the last person I hung out with before lockdown. We were like, it was the last hang. It was mm. like that, whatever first week of March or second week of March. It, you know, that, that again, that's not a profile that I, I think of as being a, uh, you know, I, I did the best job I could with it. It's not a remarkable or remarkable or, or long or, deep piece of writing, but it was definitely like, I just think felt like an honor to get to like hang with her and, and write about it. That's right. Yeah. It, it, it almost sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, like the, the skate stuff, does it exist kind of in a different lane than maybe some of the other stuff you do where the reasons you like one piece or like the experience of putting together something is different than another piece. You're a longtime skater and you work you know, in both, you, you, you have the opportunity to do skate stuff related to covering fashion. And then there's all this other stuff that you, that you'll be covering too. So does yeah. the, sometimes it's like the experience of doing the skate reporting. It doesn't matter what the final piece is. Sometimes it's just like that shit was dope because I got to chill with these cool skate people. Yeah, that for sure. Supersedes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm not like a trained, I don't really have a background in journalism, you know? So for me, like there's always, well, I, I suppose that's not really relevant, but I get a huge amount of whatever joy in, in just doing the work, you know, especially when it relates to skating. These days, I don't know. I don't write, I think I'm mostly only writing about skateboarding. I mean, I do a lot of editing. I, it's not my job at the magazine. I'm the, you know, global style director for the magazine. I'm doing mm -hmm. a lot of stuff. Um, once in a while, I get to write about skating. And uh, that's for sure my favorite part of the job. And at this point, probably when I'm writing, it's it's in that zone. I've got another feature coming out soon that's a little bit different, but does overlap. Thank you. I think I have one last question for you. When is this 
palace? When is this moment that we're in, that they're in? When is this going to become passe? Because everything becomes uncool in skating. That's a good question. I don't know. You guys tell me. I mean, <laughs> I feel like we've been waiting for like Supreme to really fall off um, as just as a skate brand, just like the skate program at Supreme. And I feel like they're still like putting out good videos and sponsoring amazing skaters and finding like incredible new young talent. That's like totally worth paying attention to. And it's not getting probably anyone on this zoom into Supreme stores to buy their shit, but you know, they don't need that. They're able to sort of do like parallel things. I mean, if someone was going to be upset about palace selling out or going to mass or anything like that, it would have happened long ago already. You know what I mean? It's like, it's hard to, it's hard to say. I think palace is going to be around for a while. That's what I think. But I think, cooler, newer, younger shit will emerge and Palace will be another skate institution, like the type of thing that they were sort of reacting <laughs> against when they started. Is Will that be passe though? I don't know. I don't necessarily think. Mm, maybe they'll be able to make that transition and become kind of like a, you know, they did that collab with Ralph Lauren. I mean, Polo's been around forever. Hilfiger came and went. Nautica came and went. Polo, God bless them. They're still with, they're still with us. And I mean, just... Oh, yeah. sorry. Just to confirm real quick, that's a heel flip that the bear is doing unequivocally, right? It's the heel flip bear. Yeah. And that's, I believe, based on the like product description for the sweater. Like that's like the palace in-house name of the sweater. Got it. That's canon. I think it look, I think it has a heel flip posture, po foot motion. I don't know. I've seen 360 flip claimed, uh, but I've always been oh. a heel flip. Uh, I've, I've always been a heel flip believer, but that cropped up recently. That cropped up. So I, I wanted to get it on record. Somehow to me, like if the polo bear is going to do a trick, in my mind, it's going to be a heel flip. That's like the most likely polo bear trick. <laughs> Interesting. That makes sense. I actually did a like a, a video where I, I took a video of um, Kevin Rodriguez doing a heel flip and paused it and then like superimposed the polo bear over it and it's like a pretty pretty perfect match it's on twitter somewhere i'll, I'll track it down put it yeah. in the show notes but That's yeah for sure a heel flip yeah okay confirmed so uh and you don't have to answer this noah but like do you have your eyes on any any brands that are um kind of up and coming or ones that you think could be deserving of a profile i mean you you worked two for two years on this palace one is anything else in the works right now? Uh, I would share it if I could think of one. <laughs> and I'll probably think of it like as soon as we finish recording. I'm open. I'm accepting pitches if, if anyone would like <laughs> to suggest one. Well, like I was wondering if there was a, a skate company from, you know, skateboarding's past, like the drawers 2000 word profile. Like, is there a brand that, I mean, it can't happen now, but that, that you think would have made a great story? Jeez, I don't know. Yeah. DC, I guess, would be, there's probably like a big juicy story there. I mean, that's a brand that really touched culture pretty broadly beyond skating in a really big way. And I mean, fashion companies still make shoes that are knockoffs of DCs, uh, but is kind of a, a mystery perhaps, which reminds me the what one, I mean, this is, this isn't even interesting really at all, but the one story I kind of wanted to do soon is the, a story on Pontus, Pontus's new shoe brand. Was it called Last Resort? Yep. Is that right? Yep. Last Resort, yeah. They're awesome. And uh, I like the shoes a lot, and I like Pontus a lot, and I still skate polar boards and have for years. And um, I was really excited by the idea of a, of a new independent skate shoe brand emerging in this moment where, where your competition is 
pretty big, pretty massive. So that's one I might get to, but you know, I don't know. I talked to Pontus about it a little bit, but it didn't really, I got busy. It didn't get off the ground. Yeah. Pontus seems like a good, a good target for you. You know, Polar is doing the fashion thing. Like is Polar like talked about in the same way as Palace or like on that trajectory, do you think? I mean, they don't have the hype, you know, they don't have the hype beast uh, market. They're definitely selling shit well and they're a big popular brand, but like they don't have stores with lines outside, you know, waiting for drop day to buy to buy t-shirts. They don't have a resale market where it's like two, three, four times markups on, on shit. They don't have collaborations other than some lo- very low key stuff that's coming on. But in my opinion, Pontus is like one of the coolest, most visionary, stylish dudes ever in skating. And um, I really wanted to get to, yeah, there's been, there's been a few ideas with him or with, with um, Malmo, like doing a story about the skate, sort of what happens in Malmo with skating and in the school and the, how the city deals with it and, uh, you know, promotes it. And, you know, Polar could be a part of that story. Sort yeah, of swirl, please write swirl that. of ideas there. Yeah. We were, we got close to it doing a story with the high school that the sort of air quote skateboarding high school that they have there. Um, but it's kind of a complicated one. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, but definitely, yeah, looking for more ideas. <laughs> more ideas i'm running out of ideas yeah send your pitches to at noah v johnson on twitter yeah get your chance to be in gq and you too can make it into high fashion yeah i mean well i don't know we don't we don't have to go there anymore but i I do think just the whole world of i mean i wrote about bianca shandon like really early on and uh when i was at another job actually and you know i don't see gq doing like a big bronze story or uh, I, I really like Magenta. I think that's a super cool brand. They've been around for a while now, but just the, 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 the small brand sort of renaissance that we've been witnessing, it's, I guess it's been years now. I should probably like recalibrate this sort of this notion, but I just think there's something really cool and exciting going on. But, you know, sometimes it's like, this is just something that's awesome for me as a skater. And that's what it is. It's not something that has to be a GQ story. No, absolutely. And there's also some of the, there's something beautiful about getting a story of this sort of depth about a skateboard company. And it's a combination of that plus the Olympics, plus more skate parks and skating becoming bigger and more inclusive. And last year, so many skaters participating in protests. It almost kind of shows like a much more dynamic and interesting and well-rounded portrait of skateboarding so that now like who in the general public is still going to be seeing skateboarding as just like those kids are a menace. Yeah. I mean, lots of people, but hopefully, (laughs) hopefully fewer or yeah. I think that, that there was a point where skateboarding is really considered to be vandalism, you know, and I think getting beyond that's probably going to be a good thing for everyone. True. We'll just say we're all practicing for the Olympic team. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about this. Did you guys see this woman who, this jogger in lower Manhattan who harassed the skateboarders? She's like, it, it was kind of a semi-viral moment where she was fucking with Sean Powers and he, yep. he, he filmed the whole thing. And it was like a really weird thing because a week or two earlier, I was skating that spot and that woman harassed my friends and me, but with a very mm. different tone. I mean, she's clearly also like a racist. In, in addition to being like psycho in all kinds of ways. She called me a fucking hippie and told me to go smoke some weed, which I thought was quite different than the way she spoke to Sean. I don't know. This isn't really relevant other than just, and just think, just thinking that, I mean, we, the reality of skating in the streets right now is still very much probably not all that different than what it has been for a very long time in terms of security and passersby and uh, just general 
anger, misdirected anger and violence. But uh, I like that idea. Like, hey, no, I'm actually just training for the Olympics. I'm actually just a 40 year old man who's just sweaty and out of shape trying to do this fucking terrible trick um, because I'm going to be in the Olympics soon. I mean, Runa and that dude from South Africa, they yeah, made it onto South their African. respective teams. How, were they older people? I don't know who they are. Oh, Runa, uh, Rune Glifberg. And, oh. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't how remember. How old is he? I, I didn't know how to – I always called him Rune. How old is Rune? He must be over 40, yeah? 46. All right. So I'm actually not even 40. I was rounding up, just FYI. Oh, so you good money. <laughs> we'll see you in Paris. <laughs> we're all, we're all going to go. <laughs> we're all going to finesse our way in. This summer marks the 25th anniversary of some of skateboarding's most iconic videos, Mouse, Trilogy, Welcome to Hell, and Eastern Exposures 3. Patrick, how important are these videos to you and to skateboarding in 2021? I think skateboarding is surviving off of the vapor trails of these three videos and maybe a handful of others from that year. It stands out to me because summer 1996, I was actually not really skateboarding at all. I was in Uganda visiting my relatives and the only news I heard coming from the US was uh, when uh, Jonathan Melvoin, who was a touring keyboard player for Smashing Pumpkins died. Um, other than that, it was like a lot of time like shuttling around uh, in the back country visiting relatives. And I had an issue of slap and I had an issue of thrasher with me. And I was just thinking about skating nonstop. I could not wait to get back to New York and skate. And it was the summer before freshman year of high school. And there was something about those videos. I think it was for Welcome to Hell, think about like basically the Hammer era is pretty much all spawned from Welcome to Hell. I mean, right down to Jamie Thomas splitting off right after that video and forming Zero. Girl was arguably, I'd say it's the best thing that ever came out of Crail Tap. There were better videos, um, there were better parts, there were better skaters on the team, but something about it from that original bunch who all split off from uh, World Blind 101 and Plan B to start Crail Tap, to start Girl and Chocolate, I think it was the best thing that they ever did. Uh, and then there's Trilogy, which has got the Menace commercial. It's got 101. It's got Dill with big poofy hair. It's got Ronnie Krieger and LeVar, uh, excuse me, Krieger, because we've all been saying it wrong for 20 plus years, 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Nine Club. And, um, you know, Kareem, Daywan, you know, right before like uh, the round one, two, three kind of thing. And... It was awesome. All three of those videos, you can trace so much of what's happening. You know, we just spent uh, a whole chunk of time talking about Palace. A huge amount of Palace's aesthetic comes from that 101 and that, uh, that 101 section in Trilogy and, uh, and the Menace part because like Menace's whole thing was like, you'd have ads that had no skating in, but it was just vibes. It was a chill scene. Uh, we're all about the same age, same age range. Like, how did these videos hit y'all? Also, welcome to hell, Jamie Thomas skating to Iron Maiden. And I skated with a lot of metal heads, so it was particularly awesome. I would also, I would just add in here real quick that um, for Palace, World Industries was like a huge inspiration. And that was talked about. I don't, it's probably not mentioned in the story. I'm pretty sure it isn't because, but it, um, it came up a lot. So yes to that. But I'm just going to go ahead and say, I think the thing about Welcome to Hell for me is I fucking hate the music in that video so much. Like, <laughs> I hate Pink Floyd, and I can't believe they made Brian Anderson skate to Pink Floyd. It just kills me. I do I, hate I, that song as well. You hate I, the Sundays? You no, hate Alyssa Steamer's part? All right. So there are some exceptions, and Alyssa's part is one. And I, I do like, is it Hallow Be Thy Name? What is, what is, yeah, yep. Hallow Be yeah. Thy Name. Of course. Like, I love that song, and that is an epic part. And just mostly for the, 
the opening line at the banks, right? The back lip. And I mean, like that, and he's in cargo pants. It's like, that's really good. But um, that's just my, I guess if I'm going to fire off a pretty spicy take, it's that um, not really into Welcome to Hell because I can't stand I like that take a lot. I'm trying to think of like what, what song I was trying to find exception to. They got that Van Halen in there, man. That was revolutionary. I'm not, I'm not here. I'm not, not here for the Van Halen. Really? <laughs> Just no. across the board. It's like check, check, all wow. of it out of here. I, I Even the Misfits? That. The Misfits are fine. And there's a Ed Templeton skates to Sonic Youth. I like Sonic Youth a lot. I mean, like compared to Eastern Exposure, like every song in Eastern and Mouse, like every song in the rest of these videos is like great. Like I would listen to these video soundtracks, like driving around in my truck or whatever. But like mm -hmm. I, to me, the Welcome to Hell thing was just sort of jockey and lame. Um, it's just not, I don't think it's even held up. I look at it now. I'm just like, oh man, BA skating to Pink Floyd kills me. Wow. Well, yeah. oh, this is a nuclear tape. No, I, I do think that's a that that song, like you're listening to the classic rock station, and all of a sudden that shit comes on. I'm just like, no. Nope, Immediately change it. Immediately. Though I, I was I never wrote it down. I never committed it to the nose, but I almost think that's like I think Jamie Thomas does great music supervision writ large of a certain bent. I almost wanted to say that's his best video, but you're 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 poking holes in my theory. I think it's his best video, but I can I can see, especially when you compare it to say Eastern Exposure, which like honestly, the East Coast it's like Eastern Exposure and mixtape, which came out the following year, completely revolutionized East Coast skating, the perception of the East Coast, and all of a sudden you had this wave of people who started moving out to New York, moving to Philly. I mean, like there was like one year like Muska was living in uh, was living in New York. Dill moved to New York not long after getting kicked off of 101. I mean, Eastern Exposure, and also because it's black and white, there's something that adds a, a bit of a, a timeless element of it too. And also because like these videos really like they loomed large. Like this was an era where you know there was no file sharing, um, or if it was, it was very very slow. It was one song at a time. It was just music. It certainly wasn't video. And so these tapes got dubbed and shared and shared and dubbed and shared over and over and over again. So they kind of took on legendary status in the mid to late 90s. And like that, I think Mouse is amazing, not just because of the soundtrack, but I think just because like it shows, first of all, it's got, it shows a lot of growth from Paco and um, Goldfish in terms of like the skits and the storytelling within them. They, they put a little bit more time and money into them. It definitely still seems like everybody's still hanging out. I think it's the last uh, last part by Ben Sanchez. A lot of folks dropped off or, you know, left skating altogether after that video. And then like Guy Mariano. It's like it was the return of Guy Mariano. I had just seen video days before going on that summer trip to Uganda. And I was totally blown away. And Guy Mariano, like his... I guess it was his come his first comeback part, and it lived up to the hype. It was phenomenal. I mean, even you hold it like from the fits to him skating to Herbie Hancock to just like his looks, you know, like especially long hair guy Mariano, which I wish he would bring that back. That was an awesome look. Top three Mariano look for sure. Like goatee, long hair. That that. that <laughs> oh yeah, like. Something. like Definitely like rolling, rolling through like, and also like he was rolling with like a wild crew at the time because like Girl Chocolate Team all used to hang out with Menace 
and 101 and like there was like a whole bunch of other like dubious characters in there I mean, and just they just must have been a lot of fun to be around if, if he's rocking long hair and a goat again we got midlife crisis mariana which is, <laughs> i'm here for that dangerous. too templeton templeton eastern exposure three you were out you were an easterner yeah I someone mean, has to do like the best goatees in skateboarding history ooh, that's gotta dude. like that's a worthwhile deep dive that someone's got to take on it yeah that's like, like a, a ride a, channel pitch yeah. <laughs> call it get I, me and lucas on the job um it's a good point though that guys fits are really strong and there's a handful of others but it's funny to notice i was like when i when i caught the show notes that we were going to do this i just like skimmed through some of these videos it was a very like anti-fashion era of skating in yeah. a, it was like for a lot of the skaters, it was a real sort of norm core type level move of like light washed blue jeans and t-shirts and was all done with like an impeccable sort of style. And it's something that I think is like, this is like the beauty of skateboarding. This is something that people like obsess over and try to replicate and like want to somehow, I don't know, it means more than just the simplicity of what it actually sort of is but it what not too many people were really going for it and there were there's a few sort of exceptions that's really rad that you point that out because i would have never thought of it like you pointed it out and i'm like oh yeah the uniform they were all wearing it but the videos all had their own vibes where it's like i segmented them out in my head that's crazy you're so correct but it's also like looks exactly like the way a lot of people dress now which is like considered to be i don't know to put it in a lame sense, like some sort of cutting edge, you know, the not just like a nineties revival, but a very specific sort of like these Levi's Levi's silver tabs, whatever with this exact fit that I like, I found on Etsy that are like, is probably what guy Mariano was wearing. I don't, I don't really know, but some big outlet was saying, I saw it on Twitter within the past couple of days, it's time to bring back cargo pants. And it's like, all right, Mike. No, they never left. They never (laughs) left. There's a whole contingent of us who have never stopped wearing camo cargos, camo cargo shorts. Um, I mean, the Olympic uniforms had cargo pants, you know, like they're here. It's worldwide. So it's like, it's interesting, Noah, you brought up uh, folks like digging on Etsy and on eBay because five years ago, 10 years ago, nobody would be dreaming of looking for weird old 90s cut baggy pants i mean this was stuff that would just be sitting in a salvation army bin um and it's amazing how it's made a comeback and yet i don't know this is old man yelling at cloud but the kids can't pull it off i don't know what it is like there has to be like i think first of all like it can't just be wide it has to be a bit of a taper and then also like you I, i think that like there's a lot of thought in like what kind of white tea it has to be like a certain cut of white tea right it has to be it, it, it's got to be large plus large double XL. And then like, it, it has to flow a certain way too. I don't know. Like I, I definitely see like uh, folks like who are getting into Jenko territory and like, you see the backs of their pants are scraping up against the grip tape or on the sidewalk and it's getting disgusting. And when weather comes back later this year, it's going to be a mess. I don't know. I've seen some, <laughs> some dudes, some current dudes uh, pull off the super big pants. Like, um, Gianni from Primitive is one who comes to mind with with Vans. Uh, I think he looks really cool with their super big pants. I mean, shit, shout out Pontus. I mean, goodness, like the Polish surf pants are basically, it's basically a take on the blind jean. The Polish surf pants and like the Polar big boys are a take on the blind jeans decades after the blind jeans. And 
like I don't know, Noah, like what happens to the old uh, the samples? What happens to like the old patterns for these clothes? Like, do they just get discarded? I mean, like, why is it that you know companies that were making the pants, the jeans, the shorts, you know, for years, and they're still in operation? Like, what happens to these things? Why can't they just say, okay, like we'll find a factory, we'll send this off, and we can make them just like we used to? Good question. I mean, I'm I'm certain that at the time there was no one who was like keeping an archive. So blind which exists today as a skate brand, doesn't make blind jeans. That seems like it's just a huge missed opportunity because Supreme makes the blind jeans. Like but, they're, they're making and selling them for like $120. So if blind's think, not making them and selling them for $80, they're morons. I think they bought them back, but they, they're, not, they're not the same. I mean, no one would want to buy them anyway because it's not, it's not how things work now. But it's a good, <laughs> it's a good, it's a good question. Who owns the rights to the original blind jeans pattern? Maybe Rocco. <laughs> I mean, can't you like not uh, patent fashion items or something like that? Like, isn't, isn't that like something you can't really protect? A certain, like, I know that Levi's has a patent, has like a, I don't know if it's a copyright or a patent or what it is on the, the red tab on the pocket. So like, if you make jeans and you put a red tab on the pocket there, you, you can catch a lawsuit. Um, right, but so you can are, copy the fit. Yeah, I think you could probably copy the pat, yeah, the fit of the pant. But I just mean there's little details that you that you can't get into. But I, yeah, I, I wouldn't think that would include like how wide the the hem is, you know? Right. What do y'all think is the weirdest thing about the fact that it's been 25 years since these videos and they still feel fresh, minus the soundtracks, which are up for debate amongst this group? But like, do these still feel like you could pop in trilogy? next time you're about to go skate and feel like and get hyped off of some marcus mcbride i mean i could i wonder if if like kids would because like i could i could watch it and be like yeah i remember like sitting at the skate shop and watching this over and over and over and like i know exactly what trick is coming up next and all that stuff but i, I don't know what a kid watching trilogy for the first time would think like does it hold up maybe i know that i thought and this is really um crazy for me to say on record but like i remember being a kid not knowing who daywan was and i i was like well, why is this dude skating curbs like i thought i thought his part was kind of outmoded in trilogy for whatever that's worth i think eastern exposure 3 probably holds up the best out of any of them because of all the aesthetics and maybe those dudes were wearing better clothes than some of their west coast cohorts i don't know New York um, section, excuse me, the New York section, the Eastern exposure, most definitely that as a standalone is probably some of the best skateboarding ever put to tape, especially the late Keith Huffnagel's uh, uh, jump through uh, Brooklyn Banks at the end of uh, and then like, you got some Kareem in there, the Cardona brothers, I mean, it was phenomenal, like, I mean, but what about I mean, what else about trilogy? Like that's an interesting point about Daywan. He was skating curbs, but admittedly, like Daywan said in a was an epically later that he had just gotten back into skating. Right. Like he wasn't really skating around the time of twenty shot sequence and was, you know, kind of caught up doing, you know, young man things, getting into a little bit of trouble, fixing up cars, and then he was just getting back into skating because then you fast forward to when Rodney versus Daywan came out, you know, he was going hard in the paint with the picnic tables. Yeah, I, I, the the skating's amazing. He's hauling ass as he always does, and it, yeah, I, I think it's it's worthwhile bringing up the point that he was just coming back. I I flashed to like Kareem Kareem's part from trilogy where I think it was hard for me even in the years following once I was 
because I started skating in 1995. So these videos were like new to me when I was a new skater. But even digesting as like Kareem's part, even as I got on as a skateboarder, like what's he do over like a big ass tree stump? I mean, any switch pop, switch frontside pop shove it over a shopping cart off a bump to gap, like reconstructing his part is really difficult because it was that out there that long ago. I, I think, uh, yeah, all, all these videos have really interesting nooks and crannies. It's, mm-hmm. it's incredible that they're 25 years old, I think is maybe circling back to the question you asked. Yeah, there's what a lot of forgettable that? stuff in Trilogy, you know, like there's a Sam Devlin part. Hey, man, I knew you were going to bring him up. <laughs> cool, cool. Hey, but Sam, Sam Devlin, I, I just found out recently, I think it was an interview with uh, Joe Buffalo, who was talking about um, being interned in a, a, a Canadian residential school. He said that Sam Devlin was actually a really inspirational skater to a lot of the First Nations skaters in Canada because he is First Nations. So in that aspect, you know, he served as a role model. And I liked his part. And also his part got me into Jesus Lizard. So... He gets points for that. But um, what about like the blind section? Just because I think there was a beef or something like that. There was um, blind wanted to have their own video for Trilogy. Um, they did not want to be part of it. Like they had been in uh, 20 shot sequence. And both Ronnie Krager and LeVar McBride both had, you know, two song parts and were amazing. Like those were, that's some of the best skateboarding that came out that year. Would the trajectory of blind been different if they had a, a standalone video to follow up video days that had Ronnie and LeVar as the stars. I think Josh or yeah, Josh Casper, the poison pill, maybe mm. for, for any standalone video. I I'm being you, you wouldn't have hit him with the vert button, like with uh, Jordan Richter. <laughs> I think any of these videos would have been better if they were 20 minutes long. <laughs> Damn, very, very uh, 2017 take. I like that. I was going like, to say, I feel like at the time, like I always wanted the videos to be longer. Like I remember getting yeah. the aesthetics video and being like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's like 18 minutes long. This sucks. But like no, now I'm like, yeah. this is the perfect video. <laughs> and then I, like I guess, Mouse is 45 minutes. And I'm like, yes, this is the amount of skateboarding I need at the time. But I'm just responding to the idea that it, they could have been broken into multiple videos is what I'm saying. Right. N- not to, not to leave all these tricks on the cutting room floor, but, but that there could have been multiple videos, but yeah, you're right. Templeton. It wasn't, that was not the way to do it at the time. Yeah. I do think that, yeah, like a blind video could have been like surgically removed from trilogy and trilogy would have been better for it. And blind also would have been better for it. Although you'd have to, you know, find a new name for trilogy. Yeah. Oh no, or just like instead of a menace commercial, a full menace joint. Like that would have been cool. I mean, or maybe just have the menace commercial be the, the third part. I mean that was Right, yeah. No man, I mean, they needed seven more years. I wonder why they <laughs> Yeah. I wonder why they didn't do it that way. I guess they must have seen that they had this tremendous power by like combining it all together and making it I mean it was a kind of mentality that lasted for a while that the videos were these big events, you know, and you had to like throw all your firepower at it. Whereas now you feel like brands are always holding something back. They release one edit and you're like, but where was the one skater I wanted to see? Oh, like that skater is going to have a part later, a standalone part or in some other project or something. Like it always feels like something's being held back. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. It's, it's insane to think that like the menace video and then it was the all city video. And then it ended up being the city stars video. Like, 
City stars. That people used to be able to roll like that in an industry that is, I mean, even back then it was changing fast, but yeah, they got to roll until like 2002. Does that sound about right? It's incredible. Um, I, I don't think we necessarily touched on all the videos, but if we, we, we all had to like sound off and give our favorite one, we have um, Welcome to Hell. I kind of know uh, someone's answer about that. It's not going to be their pick. Welcome to Hell, Mouse Trilogy, Eastern Exposure 3. Like, if you guys had to pick a favorite. Yeah, Eastern Exposure is 3 for me. Noah, what's your, what's your pick? Yeah, I love Mouse, but Eastern Exposure 3, just because Tim O'Connor and Ricky Oyola are like, parts i'm gonna i'm gonna make the pick based on like if i'm gonna go skate tomorrow and i want to watch five minutes of skating on youtube before i leave the house like tim o'connor and ricky oyola in eastern exposure three would would probably beat out anything in mouse for sure patrick what about you oh trilogy just because of the one-on-one section but more specifically clyde singleton jason dill and gino iannucci no disrespect to marcus but he had better parts that came later Clyde Singleton's another, like, in, of all these videos combined in every part, he's maybe one of the best dressed skaters of this whole, like, if you looked at all of them, like, he maybe had the best fits in all of these. Oh, hell yeah. And, like, Dill's style game didn't quite come into the equation until he got onto Workshop. It wasn't there yet. It was all right. He had the uniform down. He looked cool, but it wasn't there yet. I feel like he might have been skating in some, like, Nike trainers or something in that part. Like the trick on Hubba, I feel like he was wearing like some yeah. non-skate shoes. Yeah, but Gino, I mean Gino at the time was rocking the uh, the, the the indoor so- the Nike indoor soccer shoes, and they had that ill profile. And God, his part was so good. But yeah, I'm I'm gonna have to go with trilogy. It still still gets me hyped to this day. And Mike, what about you? Gosh, I've had so many. You know, you guys bring up so much. I'm like pinballing here. <laughs> um, Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that Eric Costin's part in Mouse is criminally underrated. If you go back and look, it it really points in the direction where like everything was gonna go. So that said, um, Eastern Exposure Three probably watched that the most and vibed with the the most. And that Tim O'Connor part, like I was a little, I was like 15, crossing my arms as I crouched for tricks. So yeah, I was pretty stoked on uh tim o'connor back then and remain so remain so learned a lot of tricks based on what he did i know one guy who could do front 180s like tim o'connor my friend ryan hant like he had like the crouch he had like the the big pop and then the pivot midair yeah it's a good 180 i'd be stoked if i could do one like that which brings us to the end of our show where we talk about what we're stoked on uh noah i don't see anything in your notes uh are you stoked on anything this week yeah i have a list uh, it's funny because frontside 180 is on my list. I swear I'm not making this up on the spot, but it was after thinking about these videos because Ricky Oyola does a good, I think it's a switch frontside 180 in a, like one of his longer lines, but, um, frontside 180 switch or regular stoked on how much am I supposed to say? I don't know. You can say as much or as little as you want. All right. I'm going to keep going. Um, big shorts stoked on, and this is based on Guy Mariano and mostly his current footage that he's been posting on Instagram where he's always wearing huge shorts and like high socks. And I think the fits look really good. I don't, I, I want to come back to you guys and understand whatever, what the controversy is about Guy Mariano right now. Cause I don't, I don't know it and I don't get it or I, I don't know it, but I think 
his big shorts fits look really good and his new tricks look good. And also the skater Frankie Heck on Instagram, who I fucking think is so sick and also wears a lot of big shorts. How many, how many things are you guys all stoked on? Roughly five, six, three. Yeah, hit us with all you got, dude. This is your um, chance. Maine, the state of Maine. Very stoked. I go every summer. I love Maine. I love lobster and blueberries. Uh, tennis. Right now, I probably play more tennis than I skate, but that's for more specific reasons than because it's what I want to do. Or maybe it's about equal, but I've been playing a lot of tennis. It's very similar to skating in like a mental way. Oh, hell yeah, it is. Uh, Evan Canori, a friend of mine who makes clothes, really beautiful clothing that I love and wear a lot. And uh, Evan is a, a skater. He would be mad if he heard me say that, but he'll never know. A super good skater who made his way to San Francisco and has a successful and extremely cool sort of more high-end fashion line, but something that I'm stoked on every day. Uh, stoked on new music from the band Low. They have an album coming out and there's like three songs out that I listen to on repeat. And my last one is uh, tomatoes. Tomatoes are ripe right now. A little salt, all you need. Mm. Yeah, my tomatoes are popping too. That's it. <laughs> I don't know if I did that right. I hope I did. No, you killed it. Oh, Mike, what are you stoked on? Let's hear it. Oh, God, what am I stoked on? I got to follow that up. I'm stoked on trying the straight eight, which is all your kickflips and heel flips still currently. Uh, skated this morning and it was very humid and hot here in the Twin Cities. And the straight eight when it's humid and hot is this wonderful torture. And you just hope that one of your friends will make it and then you're all freed from it. So that was dope. Riffing on what Noah said, I'm stoked on Lake Michigan. I was there last week and this wonderful, large, cold body of water. Like couldn't get in. I actually, I did the lake challenge. I tried to get my, my daughter also to come with me off the beach into the lake and submerge her entire body. She did not. I did. I won the lake challenge. Uh, that sets up the last thing I'm stoked on, which is my daughter, Isabel, is turning five this week. This week when this podcast posts. And um, yes, thank you, Noah. There's, there's silent applause coming over the Zoom call. <laughs> um, having kids is hard and it's dope. And uh, love my daughter. So it's, it, it's great that she's turning five and we've all made it this far. Uh, Patrick, what are you stoked on this week? Stoked on a lot this week. Um, stoked on Spitfire wheels. Stoked on those venture trucks. I have some old uh, Gino Iannucci ventures that I may or may not set up a board with. Uh, I know that's sacrilege, but who cares? You only live once. Uh, been stoked on curb skating uh, a lot, especially at the turnaround. You've probably seen a bunch of folks from skate Twitter, like Kevin Horn, Narcotics, and all them over there. It's ill. Uh, stoked on Speedos. Uh, I've been swimming a lot again, and I picked up a few pairs, and I don't know what I've been doing all these years skating in, skate, excuse me, swimming in short board shorts. It's not the same. The Speedos, it's a game changer. I really, really enjoyed that Quarter Snacks uh, favorite spot with Dick Rizzo when they talk about Grant's Tomb. Uh, features my man Paul Young. Shout out to Paul, who's getting married over in October in New York. Um, Templeton, what you stoked on? Uh, I'm just stoked on a bunch of really good skate content that's come out this week that's not like video parts and montages. Uh, Jankum had a really good piece on skate video site. Uh, there was also a really good video piece on Nike's uh, iconic skate ads. And then um, friend of the show, Farron Golding, yeah, he did that favorite spots piece, which they're always good. Uh, eventually, we're going to get Farron on to talk about them. 
yeah, super good. And also stoked on ollieing my bike. I've done it like uh, a few days in a row off this bump near my house. Uh, that's like my new morning skate thing now that the school where I used to skate like is kind of getting back in session. So had to move on to um, ollieing over my bike. <clears throat> I'd keep those clips coming, please. <laughs> Yeah, bike ollie's legit. I, Dan, I was really hoping we were going to talk more about that Dick Rizzo Grant's Tomb thing. That was an amazing little piece of video. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all those things are super good. And yeah, like I said, we got to get Farron on to talk yeah. about those things. He's, he's amazing. He does such rad stuff. Get Dick Rizzo on, too. I thought he was pretty interesting to listen to. He said mm -hmm. a lot of really interesting shit in that video that was surprising. To me. So book him, too. Yeah. <laughs> we, we love Bronze 56K over here. So if y'all listening, yeah, we'll have wow. to make, make something happen. Uh, that's it for our show this week. Be sure to check out mostlyskateboarding.net for links to the things that we talked about and other show notes. Until next time, you can keep up with us all week online. Mike, where can the people find you? Ooh, I'm on Instagram and the Twitter at M Munzenrider. Noah, where can people find you on the internet? I am at Noah V Johnson. V is in Victor on most, on any social media I'm on. That's what I'm on. Patrick, <laughs> where, where do the people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Colonel K Speaks. That's Colonel like the military rank, not the popcorn Colonel. And you can find me on Instagram and on Clubhouse at P. Kigongo. Templeton, where can the people find you on Bobby Digital's internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mostly Skate and on Instagram at Mostly Skateboarding. We'll see you guys next week. Be safe, though. It's